They've done bajillions of studies on blind taste tests and all this kind of stuff. So most will find that a 21-day dry-aged steak is their favorite. People cook the tender parts too much and the tough parts too little. So anybody who ever told me that X or Y piece of game is too tough, you didn't cook it enough. So I am probably best known for rehabilitating Steak Diane. It's a dish that was invented in the 1800s. The connective tissue in deer, in waterfowl, is fundamentally different. Keep a journal or you keep a notebook because it's no good to make something beautiful if you can't reproduce it. This is Hank Shaw of Hunt, Gather, Cook, and you are listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. You and I and everybody listening to this owns 640 million acres. I think he killed more deer drinking his coffee, smoking a cigarette in the pickup truck than I did spending all that time freezing my butt off. Something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures. I look forward to packing animals out. I look forward to that pain of success. Doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you live. I've said it before and you know what? I'll say it again louder for the people in the back. Your present circumstance should not limit your passions. This is Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Hey, this is Ryan Callahan. Hi, this is Jules McQueen. Hey everybody, Jason Carter here with Epic Outdoors. Hey guys, this is Tim Burnett with Solo Hunter. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Y'all hopping on to today's episode. You know, it's getting to be the time of the year that people are filling tags and coming home, hopefully, with uh, quarters and breasts and various other tasty, tasty treats. And so I thought it would be an incredible time to have the one and only Hank Shaw of Hunt, Gather, Cook. Uh, Hank is a wild game chef, uh, an author of some fantastic recipe books. Hank, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to hop on with me. Thanks for having me on. Um, so 
you know, I'm fam- I'm familiar with you. I think uh, from Duck Duck Goose and Buck Buck Moose were the ones I I kind of originally got introduced to you through. Um, what? How many? How many like different recipe books do you actually have out now at this point? Uh, I just released my fifth cookbook, and uh, the the last two are Pheasant Quail Cottontail, and that came out in 2018. That's as you might imagine, it's all upland, so it's mm-hmm. not just upland birds, but it's rabbits and squirrels and all of the upland birds and turkeys and stuff like that. And then the book that came out this year uh, is Hook, Line, and Supper. And as, again, as you might imagine, that one is, is about all things fish and seafood, both freshwater and salt. Uh, I can definitely tell you like the puns with the names. I, I very much appreciate the, uh, the thematic naming of all the books. I really enjoy that. It's just, you know, it's a good indicator right from the cover that while I do care deeply about my subjects, I don't take myself terribly seriously. <laughs> it's you know i definitely i definitely feel that and anyone that's listened to the podcast uh for very long i think uh knows i feel that i feel the same way about uh about what i do so i always appreciate other people when i see that but uh you know i always kind of like to start out with um just an I- introduction about you but really namely uh how you got introduced to hunting and the outdoors because from what I remember, uh, you did not grow up hunting. You're an adult onset hunter like I was. Yeah, I'm, in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of the original OG adult onset hunter because <laughs> um, while I did not start hunting uh, until later in life, I've now been hunting for about 20 years. So, yeah, it's like I, I started in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002-ish. Um, and it felt like completing a circle because I, I grew up as a fisherman and I grew up uh, gathering wild plants and mushrooms. So those two parts of the wild world have been with me since really since birth. Um, you know, my mom taught me how to, to dig clams and, and pick beach peas and rose hips and blueberries and all kinds of things growing up. And, and, you know, I mean, I've, worked commercial fishing i've worked you know as a deckhand and you know i've i've, I've fished fish has been part of my life far longer than than hunting but now that i'm no longer a, a super young individual anymore um hunting has still been with me for 20 years so you you live in northern california now did you grow up uh, like on, on the coast out there or no, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, so I, if you've ever seen the TV show, The Sopranos, mm-hmm. um, that's basically where I grew up. Okay. And, and so as you, again, if you've seen the TV show, The Sopranos, nobody's a hunter there, but everybody fishes. <laughs> okay. So yeah, and in fact, it's funny. I just re- realizing this as we speak is that, yeah, if you watch the show, there's this great hilarious episode where they're in the Pine Barrens, which is where people go to hunt New Jersey. And they're just mm-hmm. like, they have no idea what they're doing. However, they all have fishing boats. <laughs> well, you know, you gotta, you gotta take the body somewhere, right? Am I right? <laughs> well, you know, you could bury them in the pine barrens. You could dump <laughs> them in the ocean. Either way works. You gotta have a variety. You can't just put them all in the same place. Let's say you found out. Um, I, you know, I, I asked because, you know, there is a huge, uh, you know, a huge fishing culture more on the coast of Northern California. I'm a, I'm a California native however much i hate to admit it some days uh i am a california native myself even though i'm living out here in montana now 
I grew up in Southern California, Orange County, Seal Beach, Long Beach area. I fish and, out of Dana Point whenever I get a chance. It's it's okay. A, the fishery in Southern California is. I mean, everybody who lives there kind of knows it, but I don't think the rest of the country really knows how good the fishing is in Southern California. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, I grew up. I grew up fishing. Like I, for me, growing up fishing was like what we did on vacation. I grew up fishing. I caught my first fish when I was really little, and I looked forward to it every year. But we fished one place. I did a little bit of ocean fishing with my grandpa. It was not ever very successful. Um, but I grew up fishing in like the Sequoia National Forest, Kings Canyon, uh, on this little lake, Hume Lake, um, and fishing in the same three spots on that lake for my, you know, for 17 years. <laughs> and, you know, I could, it, it was stock trout. And so I grew up, you know, fishing some pretty, decent size stock rainbow trout. Um, and that was really my whole experience with the outdoors, a little bit of camping here and there, hmm. you know, a little bit of fishing, but, um, you know, that's where I grew up. By contrast, I caught my first tuna when I was like 11, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 50 miles offshore, 24 hours off, off, off the coast, you know? It's oh man. Like, so that's why these days when I take people fishing, it's always like, okay, so you think you're pretty sure you don't get seasick or, you know, you don't get seasick. And then it's like those, those TV ads are, I think it's a, I don't, it's probably an insurance company was like, are you pretty sure? Or are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> I will tell you that if you're offshore for 24 hours, we're not coming home for you. Yeah. Like if you're seasick, sorry, not my problem. Gosh, I got a, I've got a buddy that owes me uh, he lives out in Florida and he owes me a, a sailfish trip. And I just, I haven't been able to find time to make it out. And it's, it's just been a weird couple of years since I met him. And, uh, and that is the one thing I'm like, I do pretty well. I mean, I don't think we're not going to be out for 24 hours or anything, but I do pretty well, but I don't know, being on a boat in that weather in November, uh, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. It's Florida. It's fine. It's <laughs> like, if you were to Bering Sea in November, it'd be a little different, but. Florida is not too bad off the coast of Florida. I mean, no. I know nothing about it over there. I know nothing. I mean, obviously you can get seas there if there's a hurricane somewhere in the vicinity, which is possible, but November is really the end of it. So once that's over, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, look at the boats out there. None of the boats are heavily enclosed. You know, it's, they don't have super high transoms. I mean, it's, they're built for good weather. So most of those boats will not go out in the kind of weather that's kind of like a, a, an average Tuesday in the North Pacific. Okay. I guess that makes a lot of sense. Albeit, I do know a lot of crazy Florida people. So, yeah. uh, well, that's kind of redundant. <laughs> yeah. Have you played the Florida man game? Um, I, I'm familiar with it kind of, but I've never actually played it. So the Florida man game, for those of you who don't know, it's you, you type into Google the, uh, the date of your birthday. So, you know, like, I don't know, September 14th or whatever it is. So like September 14th or December 1st or whatever. And then, and then you type the words Florida man or Florida woman, depending on which gender you are. And something will come up that is hilarious. Like, because there's so many weird things that have happened in Florida that there's pretty much at least one for every date of the, of the year. So, um, wow. Uh, I just, I just did it right now since, since we're talking about it, I've got two, I'm going to go with the second one. Cause, uh, the first one is just someone punching his girlfriend. That's no fun. The second one is Florida man joyriding excavator 
likely cause neighborhood pa- neighborhoods power outage before Super Bowl. So that hey, is there you go. That is my Florida man story right there. <laughs> Let's see. What do you what do you got for yourself? Florida man tries to buy Rolex Rolex watches with check printed from home computer. <laughs> so that's a, that's one. Uh, Flor- oh this oh this is the one I was I was remembering. Yeah. So this that's a newer one. There's a better one. Florida man steals alligator from golf course, throws it on the roof of a bar. <laughs> See, there's that's the good one. <laughs> oh man, I got I got two more actually here. Florida man with Florida tattoo on forehead arrested for calling nine one one to ask for a ride home. He's got like a Florida tattoo dead center of his like forehead coming dropping down between his eyes. <laughs> And then this one, this one's pretty great. Florida man arrested after hitting girlfriend in face with burrito. Oh, must have been there a, we go. Must have been a, like a, a really big burrito. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I think I think there may have been some additional charges associated <laughs> with that, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I need to. I need to. I need to hit up my buddy and get out to Florida and and because I've never been. I've never done. I've done a little bit of saltwater fishing, but nothing. You know, nothing of the size of like kind of the, the big fish. It's all been just off the pier for for mm-hmm. smaller stuff. So oh, one of these days I'll get my stuff together enough to to make it out to to him. <laughs> um you know, one of the one of the things that I uh I really, you know, kind of the the little bit I've learned about you here and there uh is your your reputation for being willing to cook just about anything um you know and i i'm one of those people that i because i'm new to hunting and and i don't know if maybe it's the same story with with you because you're an adult onset hunter rather than being like raised in it and filled with all these preconceived notions for me it's like i'm like i shot it i'm gonna at least try it once if i don't like it then maybe you know i probably won't eat it again or i'll try a different recipe but uh you know so i I was out in New Mexico and I was shooting jacks and I made a stew, jackrabbit stew and everyone thought I was crazy and told me I was going to end up in the hospital. And you know what? I was fine. It was a little tough making it in the field, but, uh, you know, so that's one thing I definitely, I, 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 rem- I can't remember where it was. I remember you telling some stories about, you know, people criticizing you for eating jacks. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. I mean, everything you just said applies as well. Like, when you don't grow up with preconceived notions about anything. Um, and I, I, I've been fortunate in my upbringing to have to, to have questioned the preconceived notions of pretty much everything, which is why I was a newspaper reporter for 18 years. Okay. Um, but I also grew up fishing party boats, you know, head boats on the, on the ocean where you've get, it's basically like riding a bus, except everybody's fishing. And so you're, you're fishing next to people of all different, races and backgrounds and origins and, and, and likes and dislikes. So you get to see what is possible with, with fish from a very young age. And if you're open-minded, you can learn quite a bit. So when it came to hunting again, you know, nobody told me that X or Y wasn't any good. So, and then, you know, then there's other, my frame of reference for, for whale game. The first time I ever ate it was at fancy restaurants in New York city as kid. So, you know, you go to a fancy French place or a fancy Italian place, you know, back in like 1980 and 
you know, you're going to order the squab under glass or the venison or the goose or the pheasant or whatever, because it's, it's a special fancy thing that you can't buy in the supermarket. And so those are all my frame of references and hair is one of those. So hares and jackrabbits are the exact same thing, you know, different species, but they're the same genus. And, and so when it started hunting, I'm like, Oh, look hairs. And I knew they were delicious because I'd eaten them before. And I didn't find out until later that there is a, a pretty rich cultural hitch, history of disliking jackrabbits in this country that has to do with a couple of different moments. And the first is, is the settlement of the Great Plains, where because rabbits um, have zero fat in them, they're not a complete food. So if you eat too many rabbits and into the lack of other things, um, you can you can get malnourished. And so that that kind of set the cast for jackrabbits in the 1800s. And then again, in the Great Depression, people were forced to live off of jackrabbits again. And so you have an issue where if you're forced to live off it, and you'll see this all throughout the United States, where there are times and places where people have been forced to live off the land where they didn't necessarily want to. So that makes deer or jackrabbits or really anything from the wild considered it's poor people's food, which is alien to my experience, but it is a very real thing in the backgrounds of quite a lot of people in the United States. It's, it's interesting how much uh, the idea of just something in general being associated with being poor has affected our, like our, our, general cultural memory like one thing that comes to mind when you kind of talk about just this cultural dislike of jackrabbits is you know i always think about uh the whole history of why do we find tan people attractive and mm. it's because it, it used to be that it was a sign of of wealth and and beauty to be as pale as humanly possible you exactly know, still way is back in the day. and and yeah in some cultures it still is and it wasn't until the rich started taking vacations to these from how I understand it. And this could be from the last I remember researching any of this. It was when the wealthy started taking vacations abroad and coming back with these tans that then it became this, uh, this idea of wealth and attractiveness to be tanned. And it it's, it's just interesting how the concept of something's for the poor or something is for the rich so therefore, you know, now we prefer it one way or the other without even without even realizing it. Beans is a great example of that, too. So, you know, legumes and beans have been part of the human diet since arguably since before we were fully human. And but beans almost universally, you know, there's some notable exceptions, but almost universally beans are considered the food of the poor. Uh, because it's a it's an excellent protein source for people who cannot afford meat. So, you know, virtually everywhere on the planet, um, you know, beans are kind of an afterthought or they're not really celebrated. Mexico is a good example of an exception. Um, but yeah, I mean, how many people in the United States really, really care about beans? You know, almost none. I would totally be an exception to that rule. I am like a bean fanatic. Yeah, I love anything with beans in it. Yeah, I go crazy over stews, soups, chilies, refried beans, this, that, the, oh my gosh, I'll, I'll bake beans with every meal if I could. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I grow 
three to four or five different varieties every year. And I've got three that I've kind of made put into heirloom status that I've grown every year and I select the right beans. And, and I think there are, I think there is a growing number of people who care about that kind of thing because beans are kind of special in that they're like, they're like an edible jewel Mm -hmm. and that they're very pretty and they can be yours and they're malleable genetically. So that, you know, for an example, I grow tepary beans, which is a desert, desert bean, um, from the kind of the Sonoran desert area. And they've been, they were domesticated by the, the indigenous groups there. I don't know, 10,000 years ago or whatever. And, and, but they're still pretty genetically variable. So the ones that I got were kind of a beigeish tan. Okay. And every year I've been selecting only the ones that are more orange. So now my beans are a bit more orange than the ones that you would see where I got them. And, and then that will continue over the generations. And so that when I pass on and I, and I give that bean to other people, it'll be an orange bean. It won't be a beige bean. It, I mean, it's like selective, uh, selective reproduction with, with anything, you know, if you're raising, you're raising rabbits or you're raising chickens, whatever you, you know, you pick out the, uh, the genetic features you like, and you continue to propagate those through further generations. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, and in human beings, there's an interesting theory that I've been, yeah, I, I read quite a bit about human origins and in, in human uh, evolution. There's an interesting theory that the current general thought of why East Asians have kind of almond shaped eyes is that it was sexual selection. So that at some point in the beginning, when that happened, it was, you know, obviously a random genetic variant that, whoever had it was considered in, you know, infinitely more attractive than people who didn't have it. So that that trait got passed on through sexual selection. And essentially it's a little bit like, um, you know, the old trope, like gentlemen prefer blondes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the, the existence of, of blonde heads is, uh, is there are way more of them than there should be. Not only because people are dying their hair, but, um, <laughs> but because it's, it's considered, it's unusual. It's, it's, it's sort of like if you've ever been pigeon hunting, um, everyone shoots the white pigeon because it's the, it's the unique one in the bunch. So, cause your eye is drawn to the thing that is different from everything else. So if you're, if it's a sea of people with black hair and brown eyes, the person with the blue eyes is going to stand out. And that, that, that's how those kinds of things get passed on. I just know we're going to get some one person super offended email that, uh, by what we're talking about. I just know there's going to be someone that's like, well, uh, why do you say blondes are more attractive? We're not saying that. Gosh, uh, <laughs> there's always one person that's going to misread what we're saying. Um, I mean, for the record, I think I've dated one blonde in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now what was it that, that really got you into this, this world of cooking? Was it wild game that really got you fascinated with no, cooking or were you no, into cooking been, before I've this? Been, I've been way. Uh, so it started as a, a young teenager, like in middle school. So at the time it was my, my mom and me, just, just the two of us in the house. Um, Cause my sisters, uh, my sisters were older and my parents got divorced. And um, my, I don't really actually have a stepfather because my mom and, and Frank never got remarried, but they were together for so many years that he was basically my stepfather. Mm-hmm. So Frank wasn't living in the house at the time. So it was just the two of us. And mom felt it very important to cook my breakfast every morning. Well, she was busy. She was in sales. She was traveling. And, and so she started like getting too busy. And so she would cook the breakfast poorly. And, you know, I like to say that burnt bacon made me a cook. 
And <laughs> I hate burnt bacon. Like I hate it. And so, <laughs> so I started cooking my own breakfast and it kind of went from there to mom has, you know, mom wasn't the greatest cook in the world, but she had a good, you know, 12 to 15 recipes that were in the rotation that I really, to this day, still really like. So mm -hmm. she was probably, you know, better than some, not as good as others. And I would, I learned those dishes so that I could make them to take some pressure off of mom. And, and so then in, in college, I kind of continued it on. And then I started working in restaurants. So, you know, I worked as first as a dishwasher and then as a line cook, and then as a kind of a low level sous chef, you know, I never owned a restaurant. I never, I was never an executive chef or anything like that, but I learned what it was to be a restaurant cook and kept that, that kind of discipline and that, that curiosity all through the years that I was not cooking professionally as a, when I was a newspaper reporter and I became a student of food and, and all of that long predates any kind of hunting. Okay. Um, but it does not pre, I mean, obviously nothing predates my, you know, my fishing and my gathering stuff. No, it's interesting. Cause I, <clears throat> I was kind of the opposite where I could, I could cook, I could cook just fine. I was, I was pretty good at it, I, but I just, I never put any effort into it. I never had any desire to, uh, but when I started hunting, that's what's really kicked it off for me. I remember my family, uh, I was staying with them for a while before moving out to Montana and, uh, my whole family was like, we really like the Sam hunts now. Have you seen the stuff that he cooks? <laughs> um, Cause I'm always, I would always be throwing something on the grill or coming up with a new recipe or experimenting with different stuff. And uh, you know, whether it was uh, from Ronella's, uh, I can't remember which, which book it was from, but uh, I shot my first wild Turkey and made a pozole and I, I would do barbacoa. I would do, you know, all anything and everything. And they, they loved it. Cause you know, they, of course, I'm not just going to cook for myself. Right. And uh, so it was, it was that, that really got me invested in cooking. And I started trying more recipes and, and different stuff. And I uh, just the other day, I was actually, I, I felt so dang good about myself. Um, Cause it was the first time I didn't just like go to your website or go to one of Renella's books or go to Jeremiah Dowdy's website and just take a straight recipe and do it exactly like that. I just, I kind of, I had a, I think it was a fallow, it was either a fallow deer or a red sheep steak that I'd gotten down in Texas, that I'd shot down in Texas. And I was just, I was just feeling creative. And so I started doing this and I started doing that. And I'm, I made a marinade that I learned from one website. And then I was like, Oh, you know, what'd be good on this would be some caramelized onions and then some homemade garlic mashed potatoes. And then I did some other stuff. And I just, I started without sitting down and looking at a recipe. I finally started pulling little bits from other recipes and things I learned. And it was the first time I'd ever really, really done that. And it turned out very well. <laughs> and this is just me patting myself on the back for that for the first time, but well, I mean, that's part of the evolution of being a real cook. It's also, um, if you want to be a real cook and actually be able to pass it on, it's equally important to keep a notebook. Um, I keep, I have a series of leather bound journals that have sometimes it's like journal journal, but mostly it's, it's recipe stuff. And I've been doing that since the nineties, since the middle nineties. Oh, wow. And because here's the thing, once you realize that you can do that, 
your next stage of your evolution as a cook is like, oh, I want to do it again. But the problem is you didn't write it down the first time, so you can't recreate it. Mm-hmm. So every this is a thing that everybody in the chef world does. If you are making recipes or if you are are even helping to create recipes, you keep a journal or you keep a notebook because it, it's no good to make something beautiful if you can't reproduce it. Absolutely. And this was fortunately, this was pretty simple, but I have a feeling that after this call, I'm going to go specifically write it down because it was it was damn good. It was just. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually do that quite a bit where I'll freestyle. And then when it's still fresh in my head, you know, I'll sit down and write what exactly what I did. I don't necessarily do it. Always do it at the start. Mm-hmm. I do if I'm developing a recipe, but if I'm just decided like it's a Tuesday and I freestyle and I made something amazing, um, do it while it's still right in your head because you're going to forget key details otherwise. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny. One of the places of all the places that I've gotten a lot of not necessarily full recipes, but different ideas of things to try with other recipes or ways to modify the recipes was I was doing like a, a hello fresh, you know, one of those meal delivery services for a while. And I just remember there's, there's a couple of times where I was like, you know, this would be so much better with some like ground elk sausage or instead of this, or this would be so much better with this. And I kind of filed those away for later. And that's a lot of what I've, I've ended up doing recently with, with different steaks and, and grinds and, and different things. Um, of all, of all the places, one of those food delivery services has given me some actually incredible recipes. People like them because it's, you get to play chopped at home. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty of that TV show is it, it, it taps into something that's very important for chefs in general. So here in California, especially Northern California, um, any talking chimp can do fresh seasonal local because in this part of the world, there's something amazing at the in produce or in meat or in fish every single week of the year, mm-hmm. bar none. There's not a single boring week in, in the California year. So when you have that kind of carte blanche where, you know, unless you're very disciplined and really only use it at a peak, which a lot of chefs do, and it's very amazing. But if you're just going to the supermarket, you can get anything at any, it's just, a, there's too much choice. Yeah. So the thing about a box or, you know, the TV show Chopped is it is it forces strictures on you. This is why um, the cooking of the new Nordic movement. So all the Scandinavian cooking and the people who are, who are following that. That's why that cooking is one of the most exciting cuisines in the world is because by by definition, they have major, major, major restrictions. There's, they're restricted in what they can grow. They're restricted in their, in their seasons. They're, they're forced to ferment and pickle and dry and, and preserve things. And that stretches the mind in a way that, the, that here in the land of the lotus eaters that we don't have to. Because, you know, the famous quote by David Chang, who's a New Yorker, who's like, well, yeah, California food is just fucking figs on a plate. To which we all respond, yeah, David, you don't have figs that are as good as us. If you did, you would just put them on a plate too because they're that good. And <laughs> yeah, it's he's an annoying person anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, he's just, he's a class. I mean, yeah. trust me, I'm from Jersey. Like, I understand those people. They're like, they think New York is the center of the universe. And, and it's a great city, but it's not the center of the universe. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the coolest thing about if you're bringing this to the wild game world is if you, if you basically 
the most common expression of it is what am I going to do with these six or seven deer that I've shot this year? And this is mostly a Southern thing because Westerners usually shoot one or two. Um, But yeah, if you have an abundance of something, you have to figure out how to use it. And then that becomes the pivot point around which your year revolves. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So what are some of the, you know, because you, I, I don't want to say grew up as a chef, uh, but because you, you've been a, a chef in a more traditional sense, and then you've delved into this world of hunting and, and fish uh, and wild game cooking. What are some of the big differences you see when, you know, cooking maybe at like domestic animals or even farm raised kind of game animals versus, versus wild game? There's a bunch of things. Um, I think number one is you have to embrace chaos. <laughs> so um, I wrote an article called Chaos Theory in Roast Partridge because the problem with wild game that you have to embrace and be okay with it is that you don't know how old the animal was. You don't know necessarily what it ate. And so those two things are universal. Like and with birds, mm-hmm. at least you can kind of figure out that it's the end of the year. Um, it's why, like if I'm elk hunting, I would prefer to hunt raghorns than anything else because I know exactly how old a raghorn is. It's a young bull. You know, uh, uh, everyone's like, oh, well, why don't you shoot cows? Uh, I shot what's pro- what was probably a 10 year old cow once it had its ivories were pretty much gone. <laughs> and, and, you know, I couldn't tell it just looked like a cow. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, you could shoot yearlings which I do sometimes, um, or you can shoot raghorns, you can shoot button box, you know, you can, you can mm-hmm. aim for young animals, but you know, that's not necessarily going to be the best meat because I mean, sure it's tender, um, but a dry aged, you know, Boone and Crockett animal is arguably infinitely better. But the problem is that the ways to get there, it, it, and I'll put it this way. I am way more interesting now at my age than I was when I was 20 years old. <laughs> And so meat follows the same, the same trajectory. So you're seeing in restaurants these days, this would, equi- this would be the equivalent of a, of a trophy animal or an older animal. You're seeing like six or seven year old cattle, uh, dairy cattle being slaughtered and then dry aged for three, four, five, six, eight weeks and then served to customers. And people are going out of their minds because it's, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever eaten that's the key is like, you have to, you have to do that extra step. So the, the variability in age is one, the variability in diet is another. So a, a white tail that's been eating corn in Iowa is significantly different from a coos deer, which is also a white tail that is eating natural forage in the Sonoran desert. Still a white tail, very different. Um, you also have the issue of species. So if you're a duck hunter, I don't know, there's 20 some odd species of, of ducks that we can hunt in the United States. Yeah. And so there are certain ducks that will never let you down. The seed eaters, you know, pintails, wood ducks, green and blue winged teal. Those birds really are never going to be bad. Speckle belly geese are never going to be bad. Then you've got the, you know, things like mallards. Well, 
Well, hell, mallards can be anything from sublime to appalling. I mean, I've seen mallards eat dead salmon on the side of a river. So you've got that's you've got a species issue and a diet issue with that one. And then you've got you've got the the fact that just within any given class of of game, you have an issue of the meat is going to be denser. So what that means is if you imagine a, a ribeye or or a porterhouse how loose the grain of that meat is. It's, mm-hmm. it's flabby in a way versus a backstrap of a deer, which is the, the grain of the meat is infinitely tighter. So the meat itself is denser. There's more of it in less space. So that means the, the, the functional ability of that is that is that a smaller piece of venison will fill you up compared to a, a similar size piece of beef. I've, I've noticed that particularly with, with, you know, and, and the venison backstrap I've had, uh, where, you know, you cook up this, this small amount. And the first time I did it, I cooked way more than I thought I was going to eat. I'm like, okay, I normally eat a steak this big. And I sat there and I got about halfway through it and I'm like feeling stuffed. And then I started thinking about it and I, you know, you cut into that, you cut into that. And like you said, that grain structure, it's, I mean, it's almost smooth compared mm-hmm. to like a, a, a ribeye, which is, yeah. you, that's its equivalent in a, in a cow. So you've got that. You've also got uh, a very important difference is connective tissue. So by nature, wild animals are athletes. Otherwise, they're dead. (laughs) And by nature, domestic animals are not. And yeah, I think the the closest analog in our world right now between wild and domestic are heritage turkeys and wild turkeys. They're virtually identical. Okay. So like a, a heritage turkey and a jake are essentially the same thing. I've cooked lots and lots and lots of them. There's basically no difference. Now, an old big rope dragger, that's going to be a little different because no no farmer is <laughs> going to keep a, a tom for three years. Um, so that yeah, so there's your difference there. But but the the connective tissue in deer, in waterfowl, and especially in gallinaceous birds. So that's the turkeys, the quail, the pheasants, the grouse, is fundamentally different. So Whenever I design a recipe for, let's just say, uh, let's just say shanks. Shanks is a great example. So if you go to a store and you buy lamb shanks and you do a lamb shank recipe, it's probably going to take you about 90 minutes of braising time. If you do the exact same recipe with the exact same sized whitetail shank, it's going to take you three hours. It will be every bit as good, but it's just going to take you longer. And so you have to modify the recipe in a way that does not massacre everything else that is in the pot in the extra 90 minutes that it took the, for that, that deer shank to cook. So that's why you'll see in most of my recipes, a, uh, a gradual accumulation of ingredients in a, in, a, in a long stewed dish so that when you ultimately eat it, everything is cooked perfectly. So this flies in the face of all the traditional wild game cooking, which is just like throw it in a pot and cook it until the meat's tender. Well, that's fine. You can do that. And, and in certain cases, like Kentucky burgoo is pretty much supposed to be hammered. So go ahead and put everything in the beginning. It doesn't matter because you eat Kentucky Burgoo as kind of like this one semi-differentiated mass. Um, <laughs> but but most people want to be able to eat a nice cooked potato in their stew or their braise. <clears throat> so you can't add it at the beginning because it'll dissolve. Yeah. So so if you look at my recipes versus most of the other recipes in the wild game world, they don't really know that. Or if they do, they're not they're not externalizing it in their recipes. 
Interesting. I never, I never thought about that, that it's going to take a lot longer for, you know, the heat to penetrate it, for it to come up to temperature, whatever, whatever temperature you want it. It comes back to, it's actually not true. Um, really? They, because there's no fat, they do raise in lower temperature very quickly. So that's another thing because there's no internal fat in wild game. Fat is a fat is a insulator. As we all know, if we get fat, um, skinny people get colder than fat people. If you're not familiar with that, but that's, that's a thing. Um, <laughs> and, and so with meat, like a venison backstrap, you have way less room for error because it will increase and decrease temperature much faster. What I'm talking about is the density and the strength of the connective tissue. So, okay. so a shank is a great example because it's all of that silver skin, all mm-hmm. of that connective tissue in the, in the various little muscles in the shank, which is equivalent to your calf. Um, that will take way longer to break down because that animal has been running around for a year or two or seven or nine versus a, a lamb, you know, a lamb mm-hmm. shank, which has been running around for no more than nine months. I, I think I get what you So it's more, more about uh, that connective tissue breaking down. Not yes. Not so, okay. That makes, that makes more sense. I, I think I get what you're saying now. Yeah. But you brought up the great point about, about temperature and that's the other thing. So, with a backstrap or a tenderloin or a breast, the 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 utter lack of internal marbling. Now, I, in all my years, I've I've seen exactly one piece of deer that had some kind of tiny noticeable marbling, and that was a morbidly obese white-tailed doe from Wyoming. <laughs> but that's the exception that proves the rule. You have to, if you're going to make here, here's a universal truth of wild game cooking. People cook the tender parts too much and the tough parts too little. So anybody who ever told me that X or Y piece of game is too tough, you didn't cook it enough. Anybody who says, I don't like duck specifically, you cooked it too much. So the other thing that is a universal truth that everyone needs to remember is that you can always cook it more. Mm -hmm. You can never uncook something. Mm Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, that is, that is one lesson I've learned the hard way and, uh, I've eaten it anyway. <laughs> well, sure. Cause you broke it, you bought it, right? Yeah. It's not fun. <laughs> it's it, it, even, and it, fortunately it was just some, I, I, it was just some sausages. So it wasn't the end of the world. I think I ended up, I think I ended up like chopping them up and like putting them in mm. something else. So it wasn't quite as, as bad, but that I just, is, I want to bring that up. That is another thing that like, I don't understand cooks and recipe writers were like yeah throw your sausage into the beginning of this three-hour cook i'm like are you Mm. kidding me you're gonna create cat food in a casing like sausages should be cooked to an interior temperature of no more than 160 and i like 150 155 even if it's full-on pork or bear because it's still going to be safe and it goes in in the last 20 minutes period full stop like i Mm -hmm. i do not understand people who put in sausages two hours beforehand because it just as a sausage maker it makes me cry inside i've got what i've got right now i've got polska kielbasa and then i've got like some jalapeno cheddar brats and that polska kielbasa i'll cook a a variety of ways those uh, cheddar jalapeno brats i won't even put those on direct heat those will only those will get i I have a birch barrel and i throw them in the birch barrel and i lift that thing way up and i'll i'll sit there for an hour if i need to let them just smoke away um and so it just seals in that really like if if 
if I'm not afraid of it, like squirting all over the place, every time I cut into a, uh, one of those brats, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> like that's, that's my go-to with those cheddar jalapeno. The answer, brats. the answer for, for like hot liquid fat squirting all in all directions, just let the sausages rest a little bit. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. I'm like, I'm, it's funny. I'm like writing notes as well as we talk. <laughs> I, Cause I've, I've had, I've had a couple of guys on the, I've had Jeremy daddy on the podcast before I've had uh, a, a guy down in San Antonio, uh, Joshua Schwenke. Uh, he's also, he's also a chef. And by the end of these podcasts, I'm like sitting here, I have all these notes scribbled. I'm starving. And I can, I can hardly think straight because all I want to do is go to uh, defrost everything in my freezer and get to work. Um, you know, there's something, uh, there's something you brought up that I've always just, I've never, I, I know the general idea, but I I'd love to talk a little bit more about is, is the concept of dry aging, um, and what it does for me, what it does to meet the best way to go about it, the kind of conditions you need, because I feel like it's, it's one of those things. If you don't do it right, you kind of effed up a, a good chunk of meat. Um, right. You're not so I'd, love, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So step one, you only need to dry age things that are going to be cooked rare to medium, period, full stop. Because okay. sure, you could dry age other things if you wanted, but why? what's the point of dry aging a shoulder when you cook, where you're going to cook the crap out of it anyway? Um, the purpose of dry aging is to intensify flavor and tenderize meat. Okay. And, you know, sure you could do that with a shoulder or a neck or a shank. And it's, I mean, but the problem is part of this process is the creation of a rind, an outer layer that's pretty nasty that is typically cut off. So, in the wild game world, you typically only dry age hind legs without the shank or big lengths of backstrap. Okay. So if this is something that you want to do, if you want to do it with backstrap, and I highly recommend you do, carry with your with you a, uh, a bone saw. And obviously there's a chronic wasting disease issue here that you have to address. So... If you're in a CWE WD area, maybe you don't want to do this. I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, what I will do, because I don't hunt in a CWD area very often, is I will take that saw and I will cut the back strap right in front of the hips. And then I'll cut the ribs. And then I'll cut the end of the... So I have, a, I have the entire saddle, the whole back strap on the bone. And I okay. pull off the tenderloins because the tenderloins are not worth dry aging I, I don't think really in anything um, because they're just not that big enough and, and there would be too much loss. So when you have that meat on the bone like that, then you can, you could cut it into big chunks that will fit into your fridge. Um, the reason why you want it on the bone is because you have less meat that has to be trimmed later. Mm. Otherwise you're going to be trimming all the sides of the meat and it's just, you're going to have too much loss and you're going to wonder why I did that. That makes because a lot of sense. You need to keep anything that you're dry aging. You want air circulation. You want humidity and you want it to be very cold. So these are conditions that don't exist in your fridge. 
your fridge is typically very dry and you can, you can jury rig it. And I go through, I go through this in detail in buck, buck moose. Um, you can, and Oh, and incidentally you can dry age meat before or after it's been frozen, but not on both ends. Okay. So, uh, you can take a big hunk of like a big giant roast out of your freezer and dry age it and it'll be fine, but you can't dry age freeze and then dry age again. Okay. So anyway, um, it needs to be around 34 degrees. So like just above freezing, you can get as high as 36, but that's about as high as you really want it. Uh, anything over 40 is verboten because anything over 40 starts to develop unpleasant bacteria over time. And, and you can't, you don't want to dry age anything for less than three weeks because the 21 day mark, really the 14 day mark is the, is the beginning of when anybody can even potentially notice it on their palate. Okay. But the sweet spot is 21 days. So they, and they've done bajillions of studies on, on blind taste tests and all this kind of stuff. So most humans will find that a 21 day dry aged steak is their favorite. Now I've had six months old dry aged steaks and they're amazing, but they, they develop sort of a blue cheesy, like a cheesy kind of thing that goes on. And, and that's not, some people don't like that. Some people are are revolted by it, but I, <laughs> I kind of like it. So you can experiment as you will. And so you put the piece of meat on a rack. So it has air airflow all around it, which is important. And what I like to do is I, I'll set uh, an outside fridge in the garage at like 35-ish degrees. And then I'll put the meat in that. And and then, but it's a beer fridge too, right? So okay. whenever I go in there to get a beer, I open the door and create airflow. So pretty much on a daily basis, you're, you're, giving, air, you're giving that meat airflow. But it's keeping cold. And then uh, if it gets too dry, you can either put a humidifier in there or you can just put a, a steel pan of salty water, a stainless steel pan of salty water uh, under, right underneath the meat. What that does is the salt it inhibits bacteria and mold and stuff. And then the water will slowly evaporate within that refrigerator to give you the moisture that you need to, to develop the rind properly. Um, and you really just let it sit there for weeks. And then when it comes time to cook it, you, you take a, like a boning knife, a really thin bladed mm -hmm. sharp knife, and you just slice that outside rim off and it'll look like hell. Like the meat's going to look like hell, but then you cut that rim off and it's like, Oh, and it's absolutely beautiful. And I, I will tell you the greatest venison I've ever eaten was a, a Boone and Crockett moose that was probably 11 or 12 years old. That was dry aged for a month. And it was oh. amazing. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we use the term dry aging and you would, you would think like, okay, I need to make sure there's no moisture, anything like that. And it's, I, and that's what I always assumed. I haven't, I haven't really sat down and studied the process. And obviously I, I would have before, you know, trying to do any of this, but uh, it, that, it kind of surprised me when you brought up that you need that, that humidity in the, uh, you know, in the environment. Exactly. Because if you don't have it, what you have, what you get is called case hardening. So this exists when you're dry curing meat also. So if you don't have any, if you ever just throw it in your refrigerator, what's going to happen is you'll get a rind, but you're going to get a rind that is, that hardens so much that it prevents moisture from evaporating in the center of the meat. 
So that's really what you're doing with dry aging is that you you want that meat to lose moisture over time and concentrate. So you you have you have moisture loss and you have weight loss. So like if you've got a a, a five pound roast that you're dry aging, you may end up with a four pound roast at the end of it because it's it loses quite a bit of moisture and then you have the rind that gets cut off. So if you don't have enough uh, humidity, that rind hardens so much that the interior of the meat can actually rot from the center. It's really gross when oh. it happens. Interesting. Okay. So, so here's, here's my, my question is I, you know, I'm, I'm out here in Montana and I'm, I'm moving out to some property. Uh, it's going to be my own, my own space and everything. And I was, you know, I've been considering, uh, building kind of a cold, cold storage for me to place where one, I can set up like a nice stainless steel table and have it cold in there while I'm processing, but also possibly a place to do some dry aging. But then I've also considered, you know, I mean it, you know, come end of fall here, it, uh, before it starts getting fully freezing all the time, uh, what's, what would maybe, is there, is it a bad idea to just do your dry aging outside? Um, yeah, it's a very bad idea. Um, and keep in mind that dry aging is not hanging. Those are two different things. They're linked, but they're not the same thing. Okay. So it is, perfectly good and a great idea to hang a deer or birds um, in that, in those really nice temperatures that works, that works fine. But proper dry aging needs to be controlled because you're, you're, you're letting it sit for so long that you're never going to have two weeks or three weeks or a month of perfect conditions to do this. And if you don't, especially, I mean, I know I've been to Montana in the fall there's no way on God's green acre that you're going to have temperatures between 34 and 39 consistently for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. It's going to go mm-hmm. up to 55 and down to 20. And, and that's no good. I mean, you can hang a bird like that for a week or you can hang a deer like that for a week. That's not a problem, but you know, if you, if you we were just talking too much time, you need controlled conditions. Gotcha. Um, that's good to know. Uh, and so then what's the difference, like as far as just hanging, what's the benefit of, of hanging since you, since you brought that up? Sure. Hanging anything. Um, it's, it's the beginning of the process of dry aging. It is dry aging, but it's dry aging for, it's like the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the very least, the very least you're hanging an animal to let it go through fully through rigor mortis before you process it further. So if you, this happens a lot with hogs and it happens a bit with, with deer as well. So people who shoot hogs and they, they shoot a hog and then they take the backstrap off it and they're like, damn, that was the toughest backstrap I ever had. And I've, I've heard about this with typically doe, doe killers as well. Um, and people who have, who have packed out animals from, from the, the back country. If you remove muscle from the bone while the animal is in rigor, it will shorten. So rigor mortis, like like everybody out there, hold your arm out straight and then tense all your muscles in your arm. Okay. Now do that. Now imagine someone cutting your bicep off, like just cut your bicep right at the elbow. So that bicep muscle is going to go spring and spring back. That's what happens when an animal's in rigor. If you cut it. Hmm. So, you can, it's a, it's a awfully wonderful term, hot boning. Um, <laughs> so you can hot bone an animal, which is to say that you butcher it before it goes into rigor. And that's, that's perfectly cool. 
and so that that happens a lot in like Texas, where it's like bang, and animal goes down. Let's butcher it right away. That's that all works. Um, but if the animal's stiff at all, you need to let it get unstiff before you do anything to it. Um, obviously, if you're you know life intervenes, but I'm talking about in a perfect world. Like in a perfect world, you uh, if you find your animal and it's in rigor. In a perfect world, what you do is you take the four quarters off it and you saw, you do what I was telling you about, about this, the back strap. You don't take the back strap off the bone because it's going to shorten and get tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but you saw it off and then you take that back, the vertebrae with it and, and you leave it for 48 hours and then you take it off the bone and then it'll be fine. But you've got to let this animal go through rigor if you're going to want, if, if you want the most tender meat possible because shortening does not resolve itself. So if you, take that back strap off of an animal in rigor, it's going to shorten and it will always be tough. And you, you, the only way that you can deal with that is like make Chinese food or, or pound it into cutlets or whatever. It's just always, it's, you're never going to enjoy it as a steak. Lots and lots of barbacoa. <laughs> well, yeah, but barbacoa with a back strap is pretty sad, you know? Yeah. You know? That, that kind of, it's like depressing. <laughs> um, I, you know, so like an ideal situation is maybe, you know, I'm out, I'm out hunting elk. I, you know, takes a few, an hour or two for me to find my animal, whatever it is. It's, and how long generally, I mean, and I, I'm pr- probably sure it, it varies, but how long does rigor take to set in usually after an animal expires? Do you? It, it, it is variable, but it's, it's often within a couple hours. Okay. Um, and you know, again, don't, don't let any of this, prevent you from you know getting safe meat right yeah so so like, yeah you're gonna have to skin it and you're gonna have to quarter it anyway um because you just have to right otherwise it's gonna sour so yeah. you have to this is the thing about hunting it's not you we don't live in a perfect world you know sometimes animals get wounded sometimes they you know you can't find them right away blah 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 so like everything is a question of like the greatest good is to recover your animal and eat it you know after that we can talk about nuances of like Oh, it's, you know, wait until it's after rigor yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So, um, I just want to make that point. Yeah. And if you're, uh, uh, you know, if you're in the middle of grizzly country, it's probably not the idea to, uh, <laughs> sit right next to a bleeding, freshly expired animal for, uh, for 48 hours waiting. <laughs> what could possibly to... happen? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing bad at all. Um, but you know, like ideal situations, say, you know, it is late fall, early winter where it's, it's cold out. Um, you know, I, I shoot an animal, I, I, I get there, it's in rigor. So I, I skin it, I, I gut it. I, I remove those quarters, but keep as much on the bone as possible. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if I'm still say hunting, if I've got multiple tags, if I'm with buddies, hang that meat, uh, in those ideal temperatures. And that's, it uh, for a, a day or two, obviously away from camp, if you're not an idiot, um, or you're, you're not hunting in bear country. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but generally like that would be an actual ideal sort of yeah, situation. It would. It would. Ra- rather than just immediately uh deboning everything, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, the um, only like if you got a skinned quarter hanging, that's perfect. But one of the issues that can happen with big elk and moose especially is those hind quarters are so thick that you can get something called bone sour. Okay. And this rarely happens if you can quarter it in fact, I've never heard of it happening if you can quarter it quickly, but it's not impossible. Um, blood has bacteria in it. And so when the animal dies, 
blood at the center of a, a heat mass, i.e. the center of a hind leg, which is the, the thickest, densest piece of a, of a, of a four footed animal can stay hot so long that that bacteria can flourish and it will rot from the bone. So that typically only happens if you can't find your animal fast enough and it's still in the skin and it's still got the guts in and da 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 da. Gotcha. So if that's your situation, so like, oh, you, you know, you, it, you didn't get your animal quickly. So you're, you're worried about it having been warm for too long. What you should do, and this is, again, we're talking about big animals. What you should do is once you take those hind legs off, take your knife and make a cut to the bone. You know, want your, your point of your knife actually tapping the, the femur from the knee to the ball and socket joint and make that cut and kind of open up the hind leg to air a little bit. So you're, you're going to cut from, from the knee to the hind or to the ball and socket joint down. And then you're going to kind of, you know, as if you're going to debone the leg, you sort of one third debone the leg and just and enough will, to ventilate it a little yes, bit. Yes. Yes. And what that does is that will cool it down fast enough where you'll avoid that. Okay. Because I'm God help you. If you like that's, I talk to outfitters. If you talk to outfitters, you're like, yep, we lost a whole moose that way, or we lost a whole elk that way. Oh gosh. That's just, that's like devastating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that's like one thing. It, there, I feel like there's a lot of, from start to finish, there's a lot of pressure with wild game. Um, like, because of the work you put in to get it, like, the, the second you put, and, 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 and our desire to be ethical hunters and, and do some honor to that animal, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to wild game to make sure that you're using as much of the meat as possible. You're not letting not letting that meat spoil that you're uh and even when you get to the recipes it's like it's it's i feel a little bit less pressure now that i have a full freezer but when i first started hunting and i only had maybe a deer or you know uh i had some javelina or just a little bit here and there there's this huge pressure to like i better make something pretty damn good out of this um because of the effort i put into it it's like the 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 recipe needs to reflect the effort used to uh, used to obtain the animal. I think that's a false pressure. I get it. I feel it too. But I've gotten over it. Um, I think. I think it's more important for you to enjoy it, however it is that you want to enjoy it. Whether you, I mean, I know guys in the south who kill lots of deer and they grind whole deer, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, yeah, this is my grinder deer. This is my jerky deer. Whatever, whatever. Um, I don't care how you eat your animal. I care that you eat your animal. And I think that's really the important thing. Um, would I love you to use my recipes and, and explore different, different cuisines and different cuts and different ways and methods? Absolutely. And I think, I think that is, but that, that is something that you have to want to do and you, no one should feel pressure to cook something amazing with with their hard won animal because what that does is it gives you stage fright and the animal and the, and the animal really suffers from it because and I'm speaking from experience because this has happened to me where I want to honor X or Y hard fought animal, whether it's a bird or, or, or big game animal so much that I will stew over how I'm going to cook it, so to speak. And, <laughs> and it sits in the freezer for two years. And so 
don't be that. Mm-hmm. Like learn from my mistakes. Just eat it. And and yeah, you know, do some research before you do it, but don't get all hung up on it. Like find like hey, if you I mean, I'll put it this way. If you like chicken fried steak, well fuck it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like that's yeah. like I don't like. No, I'm not going to come to your 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 door and and beat you up if you don't if you make chicken fried steak with the backstrap of an elk. Like I don't care. Like go for it. You ate it. I just had this picture, like you know, somebody fried up frying up a, a venison steak or something. It's like ding dong, honey. Did you invite someone over? It's just. I hit just him come right to the, the door with a ball peen hammer. Without, yeah, without a word, you just deck them and just like walk away. <laughs> uh, Hank Shaw, venison police. Um, exactly. You know, and I will say, like, I feel the pressure was. I felt that pressure more. Like I said, when I when I only had a little bit of of venison or like little bit of wild game this year you know i shot my first elk uh finally after four years four seasons of trying i shot my first elk this last season in arizona and i i'm used to having a full freezer now i have steaks whenever i need them i have sausage and and ground uh ground meat and i have this and that and the other um and so I don't feel like, you know, it. it's, I don't want to say I don't feel like it's as special because honestly, every steak I have, like, or, you know, I, I th- sit and think about those stories, uh, you know, uh, my whole experience getting this animal, but it's not as, it's like, okay, I've got more, you know, I can make spaghetti out of this. <laughs> like it's right. not that big of a deal. Yeah, there's always going to be stuff where it's like, I, I have to do this on a weekend or date night or whatever, where like, it's usually like tenderloins or, you know, or something where there's not a lot of it. You know, I shot six woodcock the whole season. So like, that's one meal, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so you're going to, you're going to spend some time on that one, but you know, there's a, you have to be able to eat on a Tuesday night too. Yeah. Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, so so speaking of recipes, you know, you've you've got recipes for, well, we, we know we have... <laughs> <laughs> duck and goose and buck and moose and pheasant quail cottontail wow i just went full dr seuss right there that is all of those in a row is pretty amazing um you know for somebody that that's maybe just starting out they took their first deer their first let's you know just for ease of ease of picking an uh an animal you know what's maybe a, a favorite recipe that you have or a good good starter recipe for for people that might have their first uh first elk steaks or deer steaks I mean, my first advice is to, is to when you have a backstrap of of let's just use a whitetail as an example. Um, do not cut it into steaks. Cut it into lengths. So you you know backstrap and whitetail is typically two and a half three feet long. Um, you know, cut foot long st- you know sections of it, and then there's a, that one center one right right really in the center of the backstrap, which is super primo. 
cut that and cook it as a length of backstrap and then and then cook it to medium or medium rare or rare depending on what you like and then slice it into beautiful medallions and i mean in a perfect world you you cook it over a smoky wood fire with just salt and then you maybe roll it in whatever spice mixture makes you happy after when it's resting and then slice it and serve it maybe with a squirt of lemon um because that's really kind of all it needs okay but a good starter recipe that's going to make you uh, a, a, a big hero in your household is steak diane um wait wait are you are, are we in the 1960s here like I so mean, i um <laughs> really so i am probably best known for rehabilitating steak diane um it's a dish that was invented in the 1800s for venison because Diane is Diana, really? Diana the Huntress. Huh. Um, that's the Diane and Diana. And so it's originally in the 1800s, a venison recipe from France. And steak Diane is a dish that I've been making since I was probably 18, originally with beef, of course. Um, it is a fancy date night dish that a teenager in college who wants to impress the girls can do. Okay. So it is the, it's, it's a beautiful dish uh, with a great sauce that everybody likes and it can be done in 30 minutes. So if you're looking for something that's really amazing and classic and, you know, I mean, it's classic for a reason. It's been, it's been a dish that's been loved for a century and a half, really more than that. Um, Steak Diane is, you, you could you do a lot worse. Another similarly huh. old but classic dish is, is venison with Cumberland sauce. And Cumberland sauce is an English sauce. Um, okay. Both of these are on my website, by the way, and in Buck Buck Moose. Um, that's a dish that, that kind of hinges around Worcestershire and, and tart fruits like currants, like red currants or, uh, or cranberries or lingonberries. And it's this kind of salty sweet tart sauce that goes really well with with all kinds of game not just venison so most people are looking for more than just a perfectly cooked venison steak with salt and those two sauces are a really good way to start okay yeah i'm definitely going to be linking to those i've i've heard of i've heard of steak diane before i've never had it uh but not at all i've never even heard of the the cumberland sauce yeah i mean you're not wrong it was very popular in 1960s I was like, I feel like that's something like my my grandmother made for my folks, kind of a thing, kind of a thing, you know. And and her grandmother probably would have made it. I mean, there's there's a reason why these things are are classics. So so one more one more question I have for you is, you know, a lot of the time, you know, I I love to find just standard recipes, kind of like you do with steak Diane find these standard recipes and, and add wild game to them, figure out how to incorporate wild game, or even sometimes, you know, take a, a recipe that was uh, intended for venison and, and apply it to some other sort of wild game. Is there, is there kind of a rule of thumb as far as like looking at recipes or maybe looking at an being like, um, you know, okay, this recipe, it calls for this but I could probably get away with maybe some elk or some sheep or some javelina or, you know, who knows what else, um, you know, are there, are there any kind of anything 
things to be aware of when trying to substitute uh, different types of game for recipes? Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, red to red, white to white, tender to tender, tough to tough. That's the easiest way to think about it. So if it's a venison shoulder recipe, but you have wild turkey thighs and legs, that'll work. Um, but if it's a venison backstrap recipe, you don't want to use thighs and thighs and drumsticks. You'd want to use turkey breast in that example. So uh, all red meats are red meats are red meats, period. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Swahili expression, wanyama ni nyama tu, um, which means all meat is meat. So sure, there's a difference between mountain goat and sheep and whitetail and elk and nilgai and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's, you're, you know, there is a difference, but it's not a huge difference. I mean, it's not, a, it's not, it's a difference without a, without a distinction. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, of course you can make stick Diane with a wild sheep, or of course you can make it with, you know, with a mountain goat backstrap or with nilgai or whatever. There, like there's people who are like, Hey, hey man, you got any antelope recipes? I'm like, dude, it's just venison. It's yeah. just venison. And the people who get super bald, I mean, I'm experiencing this with my fish and seafood cookbook right now. Everybody gets all balled up about X species. We're like, no, dude, it's just don't think like that. It's just, they'll all work with each other. So virtually no example that I can think of where you can't sub one in for the other with the exception of food safety rules. So yeah, you probably don't want to cook a rare bear backstrap from Montana <laughs> with steak Diane. Like you could, you could have an issue with that. Um, but you could, you can finesse it. You can pasteurize that bear backstrap at medium by sous eating it at 140 for an hour and is perfectly safe to eat at that point. Um, as long as the interior of the, of that meat has been 140 for, I think it's 15 minutes. I'd have to double check the exact mm-hmm. timing, but, but yeah, I mean, there's a way to finesse it. Um, but other than that, you know, like somebody asked me about bear recipes yesterday and I'm like, well, if it's a recipe where beef or venison is cooked through, just throw a bear in there. It's the same thing. It's in it. I will say the sous vide has become one of my absolute favorite tools in the past three years. I freaking love that thing. Um, it's not mine, but I'm not you. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So I've been cooking professionally and not for, a, you know, half a lifetime. And I, the places where I use sous vide are confit because you save fat that way. You don't have to use as much fat. And then to dealing, dealing with things like bear, um, where there's a, a you know, a, an issue of parasites or food safety. Food safety, uh, sous vide is a crutch. Sous vide is a shortcut. Um, sous vide is, if, if, if you can cook any given piece of meat properly, sous vide is inferior. However, as you are getting to that level of, of skill, sous vide is a good way to get you on your journey towards, you know, oh, well, you know, I know guys who like, oh, I sous vide this thing at 180 for 12 hours. I'm like, well, why didn't you just put it in a freaking pot? Because it's the same temperature. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, so the other, the, the, the single biggest problem with sous vide is that you can't check it midstream. So you have to break the bag open and who the hell is going to rebag something midstream? You're no one. Yeah. And so, and I felt this really came into the forefront in the buck, buck moose book tour where chef after chef, after chef, after chef would get elk or venison backstrap, you know, farmed 
and they would use it for these dinners and they would sous vide it because they were scared of overcooking it. So you would sous vide these, these pieces of meat for like three or four or five hours at 130 or 135. And it would be, you would need teeth to eat it. It would turn into wallpaper paste. And it's like, it's, yeah, well, it doesn't, it won't overcook it. Bullshit. You know, yeah, it's not going to cook it past the temperature, but things continue to happen on a molecular level as, as you cook something that long. And it's just simply not, it's just not a superior method of cooking. This is why it's very rarely used in a lot of high-end cooking these days. It had its moment, um, but people are realizing that, that if you know how to cook, it's just simply inferior. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying understand that it is a is a step in a ladder and not an not an end. Yeah. I will say I think one of the one of the things I do like about it is is the the laziness of it. Is I can I can throw something in there and if I have to be out all day and I can set it at that temperature, come back and um and and generally have an idea, not not worry as much about it. Crockpot um, works just, works the same way and it's cheaper. <laughs> I, uh, I I've not had as good of an experience with crock pots, but again, I'm not as experienced of a of a chef. So, um, but uh, yeah, no, that's a, it's a great perspective because I haven't, you know, typically when I talk with people, like, oh yeah, sous vide is great. I love my love my sous vide. So it's it's good to hear a fully different perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, it has its uses, but as you get become a better cook, those uses fall away. Mm-hmm. Until they're, you're left with a few, which is really kind of where it's used in professional cooking to this day. It's like there's a few things that it's quite good at, but it's just like canning, right? So if you, if anybody out there, if you've ever started canning, right, that first year, that first couple of years, you're like, I'm canning everything. And, <laughs> you know, you can 75 pounds of peaches and then you realize that you really only needed three pounds of peaches. And so what the <laughs> hell am I going to do all these other peaches? And, and it's, it's people are, it's a new toy. It's shiny. People want to do things with it. Um, I get it. I get it. I've been there and I'm, and I'm, I still get there with some certain things like, you know, I have a chili roaster now and I kind of want to roast everything. So it's the process of learning a piece of equipment and you want to do everything with it. And then as you do everything with it, you very quickly realize that, well, that's much, that'd be much better in a pan or that'd be much better on a grill or that'd be much better elsewhere until finally you, it, everything falls away until you get to these handful of, of uses where like, nope, sous vide's the best. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So, I've got, I've got some some shanks uh, from I've got some red from that red sheep and from a, a fallow deer. Uh, that was I was. I can't even remember who inspired me to to cut the shanks. I was just told I need to cut the shanks and it try been me. It could have been also Steve. Buko. It you know it's it was likely probably a combination yeah, of. I mean, of we've both. been preaching that. Both of us have been preaching that for a decade. And I'm I'm probably about 
80% sure I did it right. I <laughs> at least close to right. Um, but so I have these, I have these, I guess, Osabuko shanks. I've got a few of them. Am, is that something I'd want to do in the sous vide? Not in the sous vide? There's no reason to. Okay. Yeah, you know, because the connective tissue does not start to break down until 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So sous vide is specifically good at things that are lower than that, um, unless you're doing comb feet. So here's the thing. So if you sous vide these, sure, it'll work, but you'll get a better result if you brown the meat first and then put it in a Dutch oven or a crock pot after that. Okay. You'll just, it's because it, there's zero reason for precision. Sous vide is best at precise cooking. And, and you don't need precision with a, with a shank. You just need long, slow temperatures. So okay. if you're going to, like your, your example where you're, uh, you're just going to go out. I mean, shit, dude, you can put it in a, in a Dutch oven braising with a, with a lid on it and put it in the oven at, you know, 250 or 300 and you can be out eight hours. It'll be fine. Um, you know, crockpot's even safer. So there's no need for sous vide in this particular case. Okay. And you can test it. You can check when it's done because that's the biggest problem with shanks is that I don't know how long your shank's going to take. Could be three hours, could be five. And if it's sous vide, you'll never know. Wow. Okay. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm sitting here processing this and thinking about recipes <laughs> and, and all the things, things I want to be making right now. Um, and uh yeah tonight's gonna be a good dinner there it's friday it is friday friday evening don't have to be don't have to be anywhere so it's gonna it's gonna be a cooking night tonight i'm thinking yeah i'm gonna do a spanish uh, seafood stew tonight i've got i did an event uh, a book event yesterday and we have some leftover shrimp and leftover crab and i've got some smoked mussels and some clams and squid and and so i'm gonna make a big old spanish stew there's one i made some uh some bone broth out of, uh, I, I've, I just haven't had a lot. Cause I didn't, I didn't process my elk myself, uh, because I was out of town. I did. I just didn't have Shame. the time to do it. I know. <laughs> I know I've, I should flog myself. Um, <laughs> that but, one, I might come to your house and be uh, travel. <laughs> I did not, I did not process my elk myself. I did get some very reputable, uh, recommendations. And it was one guy in Arizona. He was recommended by multiple people. And then even after the fact, I had posted some pictures of, of dropping off the meat and everyone was like, Oh my gosh, it's Casey. Yeah. He's the best. All right. When and you so, find somebody that's good like that, then that's yeah. Because yeah. that's the thing. It's like there's the, most processes are good people, but they're slammed and too busy and they don't do a mm-hmm. great job. You just, just cause they're too busy and they don't make a lot of money off of each deer. So yeah. Um, and plus me personally, I just love breaking down animals. It's, it's my favorite part of the, of the process really. When you're more invested in it than they are in, in that you're going to probably get more meat off that bone than, than they will. Uh, the likelihood is you're going to spend more time because you put in the effort to take that animal. So you want to get as much out of it as you can. And uh, I will give this to the processors that a lot of them are quite good at, at doing that. But yep. what the, the benefit of you doing it yourself though, is it's like opening up a Christmas present is, is as you're working an animal, whether it's large or small, you get to see how well it was shot. You get to see how fat it is. You get to see the size of things and you make decisions as you go. So you can, you, you can actually kind of run through your head. Oh, well, I'm going to make, you know, fajitas with a flank. I'm going to cut off these shanks whole because they're not super big. And 
Um, you know, I'm going to leave this shoulder ho- hole because it was a little, it was a little dough and you can make these snap decisions based off what you're going to cook in the future as you go, where you just don't have that ability with a, with someone, somebody else is cutting it that you're not standing next to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a, you know, I didn't even think about it that way that it's, you know, you're walking up to a processor and you're like, okay, well, yeah, I guess give me some sausages, some, you know, cut the back straps into roasts and do this, that, the other, and, and that's all you get. And if, and they're going to do that regardless of whether or not they look at something that's the most ideal. Cause mm-hmm. I don't think you're getting a processor that's going to call you up and be like, Hey, I know you talked about this, but, uh, I'm seeing some, you know, this, this, and this happening. So maybe you should change your mind. And that happens exactly never. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, if anybody knows a processor that does that, give me a call. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't process my elk. Uh, so I, I typically have, after I shoot some, I have a ton of bone broth I make crap tons of bone broth i love it um but uh so i have a little bit from uh the fallow deer and the sheep that i shot Uh, i processed those myself i made made some bone broth and i've been wanting to do something again it's because because of the scarcity i want to use it for something where i'm going to taste the bone broth not just you know use it on the back end of some recipe, but something where it's a larger part of the recipe in and of itself. And I was thinking of making, uh, trying to make pho with it, with like some, you know, get some of that, the, some of those fallow deer and red sheep steaks and cut them thin and, uh, and do something like that. And that may be a good option for tonight. It is. It's a good call. If you have buck, buck moose, there's a recipe for that in the book. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm thinking the more the more we talk about it, I'm thinking that is going to be at least this weekend that that may be that may be a recipe. Um, but yeah, so uh, one last thing I want to ask about, and I, I heard about this and I did not fully understand. It. I can't remember which it was on a podcast or a video or, or something, but it was you talking about this concept of master stock and. I did not understand what it was, but it sounded fascinating. <laughs> and I think, I think it was talking about barbacoa yeah. when you were talking about it. I can't remember which podcast it was or which video or, or, or article or something, but I didn't understand what, fully what it was or how, you know, what, what you do to continue making it. So there, it, it, this concept exists in several different cultures, but probably most famously in China where you have a broth or a stock. Um, you know, there's a famous Mexican chef um, named Enrique Olvera, and he has a, um, a master mole that it is a, akin to backslopping with a starter when you're baking. So you have a stock or a broth that you make for a dish, whether no matter what, it doesn't matter what, really what the dish is. So let's just use the barbacoa example. So, Barbacoa, traditionally speaking, is is a uh, you know it's a it's a goat or it's a cow's head or something like that that is wrapped in in banana leaves or maggi leaves and with spices and it's kind of pit pit steam smoked at the same time, which is very difficult to make in, a, in an American kitchen. So what I tend to do is I will smoke a, a piece of meat and then I will basically braise it. And, and so that broth that you use to braise it has many of the same flavor elements that you would get in a, in a pit in Mexico. Okay. 
And, and so that broth becomes incredibly flavorful as you braise that piece of meat into submission. So when you're done making, making on night one, you basically, you know, will hang it, you know, you let it, you let the meat sit in the broth until you're done with the meat and then you've left with this broth. So then you strain it out and then you either make more barbacoa using that to start with. You have to refresh it because you'll need more water and more spices and, and you'll add another piece of meat. Or if you're not going to make it again in another week, and so that broth would go bad, you freeze it. And then you, you thaw it out and then you use it as the starter for your next batch of barbacoa or something similar. It doesn't have to necessarily be the same exact recipe over and over again, but it should be similar so that the flavors are merry. Yeah. And then over the years, the, that quart mason jar, those two quart mason jars full of this master broth that you have, you know, used and refreshed and frozen over and over and over again. It, it, that and the fact that I, because I smoke my meat every single time before I make barbacoa, that's why my barbacoa is better than yours is because, is because I, I'm adding these elements that cannot really be reproduced because they're so idiosyncratic that, you know, they, they add that level where, so, so in China, this master stock is often used with a lot of their broths and it's and so the restaurants become known for it where, Oh, well, you've got to have the, this soup because it's, it's made with this master stock and it's not, it's irreplaceable. There's like, there's no way to reproduce it because some of them have been going nonstop because if it's a restaurant setting, it's never not on the burner mm -hmm. for years. And so you cannot reproduce that depth of flavor without doing that exact process but you can do it at home with this you know with the use of mason jars and freezing or you use whatever receptacle yeah. you use in freezing um and so that is a way to elevate your cooking very simply and it also uses less waste because you're reusing this broth over and over again and and it it, it will make dishes like that so much better that you can become famous in your neighborhood for it. Interesting. That is, that is definitely going to be my next challenge. Cause I've though, when I've done barbacoa, typically I one, I need definitely need to start smoking it beforehand. Typically I just throw, I do it with a, a lot of like uh necros venison necros. I just Me too. throw the whole thing in. Um, I did it with that. It was actually, I did a javelina rear quarter. Um, and that turned out real. I love the barbacoa that came from that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm definitely going to have to start smoking it beforehand. I never thought of that. I mean, you could cheat um, and you smoke salt, but I mean, nothing mm -hmm. nothing beats smoking a piece of meat for it's, you know, you don't have to smoke the hell out of it, but like a couple, two, three hours to get a yeah. good smoke on the top of it. Because real barbacoa is is pit cooked. So there's, it's smoke and steamed at the same time. So like, mm -hmm. it's not like it's, you're not, you're not braising jerky, in other words. Yeah. And, uh, but typically, so when I'm done, done with my barbacoa is I just mix it all together, all that, all that stock and broth. And cause I, I tend to just make a more watery, watery barbacoa across the board, I guess. It should um, be moist, but not watery. Yeah. Because you know, it has to be eaten on a taco. Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, I guess I'm trying to think like, I guess there is a, a decent amount once I'm done like scooping it out and throwing it in the Tupperware or whatever to either freeze it or save it for tomorrow, uh, whatever's left over. I guess there is a decent, now I'm thinking back, there's a decent amount of broth left in the bottom of that Dutch oven or that crock pot. 
So I'm definitely, that's going to be the next, uh, I think that's going to be the next, uh, culinary adventures, uh, with, with these, any of these recipes I'm making is, is starting some master stocks. I'm also definitely, once I move, I'm definitely going to have to try more, more pit braising because I'll have, <laughs> have my own land where I can get away with crap like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you didn't build, dig a pit in your yard, line it with bricks and then, uh, then you, then it's always there. Mm. All right. All right. I'm getting hungry and my mind is swirling with entirely too many ideas. So, uh, you know, I always like to end, end with, uh, you know, say somebody finds out, you know, you're a wild game, wild game chef, you'd love to hunt and they're talking to you and they're like, you know, I, I don't know anybody that does this. I, you know, I didn't grow up doing this. I I love the idea of hunting and cooking my own food, but it's a little intimidating. There's so much to learn. What words of encouragement might you give that person? Don't be scared to fail. I mean, I think that's number one is if you're, if you're scared of failing either, you know, out in the field or in the kitchen, you're never going to get anywhere. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've failed at dishes or failed at, at hunting trips, which just happens. It's part of the game. And we are kind of raised to expect instant success and instant gratification and hunting and cooking are not like that. Um, they are once you get good at it. And even, you know, you know, I may have been hunting 20 years and, and the animals win just as much as they don't. Um, so that never changes, but, but I would say if you're going to do a dish that is out of your comfort zone, you can do worse than follow my recipes. And, 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 and I say that specifically because my recipes are tested by human beings like you. Mm-hmm. I do not allow chefs to test my recipes. So <laughs> it is extremely important so that if you're new and you're, you're worried about this hard won game that you just got, know that because I understand that what, a person writes is not necessarily what another person reads, which is extremely common things like text messages <laughs> that my recipes are written so that what I write is what you read. And that I, I work very, very hard at instilling a, an atmosphere of trust in that if I tell you to do this, know that people just like you, have read that exact recipe and made it work. So that's kind of my mission in life is so that if, you, if this is your first deer, this is your first tenderloin and you come across one of my recipes, know that it's been tested and it works. Awesome. Well, Hank, if folks want to uh, find you online, follow along, where can they, uh, where can they uh, look you up? Sure. I am. Uh, I'm basically look for hunt, gather, cook. Um, my website is hunter, angler, gardener, cook. And the easiest way to get to that website is either type that name or go to huntgathercook.com. Uh, I am very active on Instagram and that is uh, I'm hunt, gather, cook on Instagram. And I run a podcast myself. That podcast is the hunt, gather, talk podcast. <laughs> and that is uh, everywhere podcasts are. And it's, we are currently in season three which is uh, fish and seafood. So if you're interested at all in anything, freshwater or salts, fish and seafood, the current season of Hunt, Gather, Talk is all about that. Well, I will definitely make sure to link to those on the show notes page. Um, One thing I will say is be careful 
make sure you're going to hunter, angler, gardener, cook, not hunter, gatherer, cook. There's another website that is kind of kind of hopping on your uh, your name theme here. Um, and I, I remember pulling it up. I'm like, does he have a new website? And I'm like, no, this is definitely not Hank. So make sure, uh, make sure if you're going to his website, it's Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, uh, honest food, honest-food.net or Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. Or just uh, Google my name. Yes. Uh, the only other yeah. Hank Shaw of note is a, a ex-FBI officer. I'm not that. Right. Right. <laughs> um awesome hank well thank you so much for taking the time to hop on i uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your day thanks for having me on all right y'all that'll do it for this episode of the wild initiative make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com get links to everything we talked about in today's episode another big thank you to hank for hopping on make sure you check him out hunt gather cook on instagram uh hunter angler gardener cook on the web and also a check out hunt gather talk go give hank a subscribe check out his books we'll link to all of this again on the show notes page but y'all that'll do it for this week looking forward to next time but until then i hope this episode inspired you to get involved get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. 